Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm of course your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I'm the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. I am so happy to be sharing this episode with you. Uh, I am so happy to have a guest on the show today. I, I get the uh, thrill of introducing uh, today's interviewee. Uh, I, I love having these sorts of conversations. Uh, I was actually thinking about how this show sort of started, Ministry Minded, uh, way back in the day. It was really just me wanting to have conversations to uh, even further this sort of theological exploration that I was going on. And I figured that the best way to do that was to sort of even more think out loud. So I was inviting people on, interviewing guys, having conversations about all kinds of different uh, theological topics. And uh, it has been so much fun to uh, continue the show and to just talk with guys about their faith, about their calling, about how they have seen some of the messiness of ministry, but how that has also allowed them to see uh, the beauty of ministry as well. Uh, and it really started as uh, really geared towards younger guys in ministry. I'm a young guy in ministry. I'm a young pastor. I am uh, still, I would say, exploring uh, my faith in the sense that I am uh, not wanting to be presumptive about uh, anything that I am declaring a teaching, I am still uh, very much uh, dependent on, uh, of course, the Holy Spirit, but those around me for influence and insight and such and, and whatnot. Um, but I say that because I think there is a, a, a sort of uh, veil that has been uh, thrown over many young guys' minds when it comes to ministry, and so I was wanting to have conversations in this show that sort of were like, hey, what you see on social media isn't always the case when it comes to ministry, that there's, there's a lot more things that go on. There's a lot more things that, that happen in ministry that uh, that you don't often see. And to, as a guy who's been around ministry for a very long time, I've grown up in church, I've been around pastors, uh, I wanted this show to be sort of an outlet for that, uh, so you can kind of uh, ha have some of the uh, sort of the honesty of ministry come through. And so I'm excited to sort of return to the roots uh, of that sort of uh, impetus for this show by uh, introducing today's 
today's guest, uh, fellow blogger, fellow writer, fellow young budding theologian, uh, Blake Long. Blake Long is a a, a guy who writes uh, in many different places. He writes on theologyinlife.com. He blogs about many different things, um, but he also has felt that God has called him into ministry. He's gotten some degrees uh, towards that end, and he is pursuing God's calling for his life, which I just love. I love to hear that guys um, that are uh, sort of contemporary in age to I am are are seeking the Lord and seeking sound theology, theology and striving to have Christ define their life. And uh, I love the way Blake writes. He writes in a very uh, conversational tone. I love the way he thinks. He he thinks very practically about any subject that he's coming across. And he wrote this uh, article that has received a lot of attention recently. It got picked up by church leaders after he uh, posted it on his own blog. It was called... Um, the gospel is offensive, but you shouldn't be. And he just talks in there about, in this article, about how, uh, sometimes we can take the truth of the gospel and we cannot, uh, uh, couch it in the love of the gospel. We can be so aggressive and heavy handed with the truth that we are trying to prove, uh, to proclaim and convey to, to others that we can actually turn people off with the way in which we present this message of the gospel. And so, uh, I, I loved having this conversation with, with Blake about this, uh, I think a really pressing topic. It's, it's a topic that I think is has, uh, in, at least in recent months for me, become more apparent uh, as we've just been through the election cycles. We've been through these different seasons of life in which uh, the offensiveness of the gospel of of Christianity of of quote conservatism is brought more to the fore. We can often let those things uh, be sort of confined and caged, so to speak, in our own sense of making sure that it gets across, that the message gets gets across to those that we are talking with. And uh, actually, we don't really need to do that. <laughs> um, uh, the gospel is already offensive. We don't need to make it more offensive. <laughs> And, um, it, it just reminds me of that quote. Uh, you know, there's that, that, there's that quote that's often attributed to St. Augustine, which is, isn't really an Augustine quote. And then it's also quoted by Charles Spurgeon, but it's actually not quoted how you think it is. You know, that quote that goes something about, you know, the scriptures and untamed lion. Well, he actually, the, the real quote comes from one of his sermons and he says this, let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with the, your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. <laughs> it is an untamed lion. We don't need to make the gospel offensive. It already possesses in itself lion-like majesty, as Spurgeon says. So we just talk about that. We talk about uh, the offensiveness of the gospel and how we don't need to make it more offensive, which also is sort of the inspiration, the motivation behind uh, a project that Blake is working on. He's writing a book, and so I'm so happy to be uh, just uh, talking with him about this. His book is called Gospel Smugness, and uh, I'm really excited to have him unpack that for you. So enjoy this show as me and another uh, young minister, young uh, budding theologian just kind of hash out different things uh, from our own experiences and uh, the way that we've learned the faith, the way that we have 
sought to uh, have Christ define our lives. I hope you're blessed by this. It's, it was a great episode to to record, and I'm so glad I was able to uh, get the chance to talk with Blake about it. Before we get into today's episode, though, of course, I want to share a word from today's sponsor. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. Now, on to the rest of this show. Uh, Enjoy this conversation with Blake Long. Well, Blake, it's so good to have you on the podcast. It's been a long time coming, I feel like. Um, I was trying to remember, though, when we first actually got connected. Was it back with the Majesty's Men? Is that Did you do some stuff for them yeah, way back no. in the day? I, you know, as soon as you um, emailed asking me to come on, I was thinking to myself, it was the Majesty's Men when we first at least interacted online. And gosh, that was, I believe... I mean, I could be wrong, but I believe that was five years ago. I yeah, I was going to say that was a while ago. 2016, because I remember telling Shell, my wife, you know, she's my girlfriend then, but I remember telling her I got on with this group of bloggers called the Majesty's Men. I have no idea who they are, but I'm going to go for it. <laughs> and then I, I mean, gosh, I probably wrote five articles. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And I yeah. Honestly just I actually just emailed Riley yesterday, making sure I can still submit one. So. <clears throat> But yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> good deal, man. That's yeah. I remember those were some good times uh, back with the Majesty's Men. Uh, I have some good friends that have come out of that ministry, and I'm glad to see that they're still kicking. Yeah. Um. But that's that's so cool. It's cool for me to uh, do stuff like this, just because I love getting connected with people all over the the country and the world, so to speak, and uh, finding some commonalities among young bloggers like yourself. So, mm-hmm. um. So just yeah, let's just start there. Just kind of tell me about yourself, uh, where you are, what you're doing, and kind of what God has in front of you right now. So, um, like we talked about earlier, I was born and raised in Ada, Oklahoma. It's a small town of about probably 18,000 people, but it's also a college town. So nine months out of the year, we've probably got closer to 23,000 people here. Um, and it's, it's, it's a, obviously in the heart of the Bible Belt, but the, hmm. the the town here is East Central University, and it's very liberal. So we do have a weird sect of people that are that are not like everybody else. Um, and of course, I I graduated from Ada High School in 2013. Um, graduated from ECU 
in 2017. Uh, two years into my college degree, I decided to change majors to the mass communications department and got thrown into the liberal side of things and had to deal with that craziness every day. It really wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, but I, I did deal with my fair share of uh, people who were not like me <laughs> worldview-wise. Um, so yeah, graduated there in May of 17. Then I, I went straight to seminary at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I started there um, August of 17, and then I actually finished courses there, and this was this was all online, so I never went to Kansas City except for graduation. But um, I, I stopped classes or finished classes in the summer of 2019. Didn't actually walk until December of 2019. Actually, we we made the the six and a half hour trip up to Kansas City. It was a fun time, except that was the, of course, that was the first time we went out of state and. Jovi, our little girl, decided to get sick for the first time. So that was a lovely, lovely time. <laughs> it was it was still good to be up there and to see Dr. Allen and see all those professors. It was really fun. Um, I've been married to Shell, my wife, for three years now. Um, awesome. We've had our little girl Jovi for almost a year and a half, and she is man, she's our pride and joy. I know that's a cliche thing to say, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. And she, you know, I, I know people talk all about how they never get any sleep and most of that's true but like for us we you know we obviously didn't get any sleep for the first month because you have to wake up every two hours to feed the the baby but since then she sleeps like a charm i mean it's just awesome i, I can't remember the last time i've woken up in the middle of the night to care for her she just sleeps throughout the night um there you go um other than other than that um introduction wise i work for you know, I'm not in ministry officially. I work for the Chickasaw Foundation. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of tribal nations. Of course, I mean, I know, I know you know what Native Americans are, but we have the the Chickasaw Nation that is um, that resides here in Ada, and I work for their foundation. We just we do scholarship work. We do work for employees. Uh, we have a benevolence fund. If you, you know, you have a you or a family member gets in a car wreck or you know pass away or some sort we help you out in that respect um and we just do other things it's really it's really great to work for them it's a really great place to work and um and of course you know they they pay well and they have amazing benefits that that always helps but so that that's a little (laughs) bit about me that's awesome, Blake. Now, you, you, you mentioned something I found interesting, that you're in a small town, but that is also a college town. Yeah. And I, I'm, I can relate to that a little bit. You know, I, I just trans, um, I've, I've just moved north, so I, I grew up in the south. Mm-hmm. Uh, I pastor now in the north in Pennsylvania. And there's a smaller-ish town, I would say, um, Danville, Pennsylvania. But it's, it has its home to... Um, it's home to a college town. Mm-hmm. And so a, it has that weird sort of juxtaposition between quote rural life with what you described as, as some liberalism just because okay. of the nature of universities and such. Right. Can you talk to that in any way in terms of your context, in terms of like, you know, how that juxtaposition plays out with the quote, the Bible belt versus sure. uh, some of the, the, the liberalism that's prevailing uh, in, in your area? I, I will say, um, you know, at least I see all these, all the stuff about, you know, dealing with 
um, you know, young adults going or young Christians getting into college and dealing with professors that are antagonizing and all this stuff. And I'm sure that's true in many places. And I'm sure that's true even at ECU. You know, one of my pastors, we're, we're an elder led church. Mm-hmm. So one of our pastors um, knows a lot about ECU and about the pastors there. And so there, there have been some instances where even some of our college kids have dealt with, uh, oh, I mean, whatever term you want to use, marginalization, you know, being called out or made mm, yeah. for our faith. And I, but I personally never dealt with that. You know, I, I, I was, even though getting into the more liberal um, area of ECU in the mass communications department, um, three out of four, actually, I think four out of four, all of my professors were lesbian or, or were gay. Um mm. I had one professor who was uh, was a male, so he was gay, and uh, he was the more he wasn't flamboyant, but he was more vocal about his uh, differences. And there was one other professor that was a lesbian, but man, I loved her. Like I, she was my favorite professor. She was my advisor. I loved her so much, and you know, she she passed away probably two years ago. And it was a very surreal thing. She got cancer and she, you know, she got her diagnosis and she died like two or three months later. And it was mm. very surreal because knowing she was a lesbian, um, she's not in heaven. And it was a very surreal thing because, you know, I, I love that professor. But anyways, I'm kind of veering off topic. But o- overall, there is definitely an aspect of the emerging liberal um culture at, at, at ECU and definitely within this little town we I, I don't see too much of it just from a general perspective now since I've since I've been out of college um because gosh I mean the vast majority of people in Ada are conservative um at least nominal Christians of course not everybody is a Christian that say they're a Christian but <laughs> yeah you know they're very conservative and you know left and right we we saw the uh, make make America great again, car slogans <laughs> and you know the the fishes on the the cars and all this stuff. So it's a very conservative town, but yeah, there is that that aspect of liberalism that is, uh, and, and gosh, it's not just liberalism though too. I mean, it's we, we had a uh, a Black Lives Matter rally, which was uh, it was respectful. It was it was a it was a protest. It was a uh, peaceful protest and you know, power to you. Um, there's a lot of actual churches that, you know, did, you know, walked with them, but like there is definitely an aspect in Ada of the more extreme liberalism. You know, you can be liberal and mm-hmm. respect each other. Absolutely. We want that kind of discourse, but there, I, there's definitely that extremism for sure. And it, it comes straight from the university. There's no doubt about it. Hmm. Now, I'll I'll just group us together a little bit in this. We're, we're younger guys in the ministry or uh, praying towards that end um, in your particular case. Um, but I would say how this is a combo question, I guess we could say um, how I want to hear about how the Lord saved you. But also I want to hear, like, how would you say that that your salvation experience i don't really like that word but mm-hmm. how that sort of 
the formation of your theology, how has that helped you deal with sort of this this tension in your small town area between uh, conservative conservatism and like mm-hmm. liberalism, let's say, and yeah. and how, especially as you went to a secular university, how how would you say that that has prepared how that prepared you and kind of like solidified things for you to better yeah. deal with those sorts of things? That is. That is the spot on question because so, um, of course, living in Adam all life in the heart of the Bible Belt, I've always been a Christian in name only at the very least. Um, I remember um, a couple times in junior high, I went to church on a Wednesday night. This was at the local First Baptist Church right down the street from our junior high. And I mean, obviously, looking back at it, it was more of a Christian social club night than anything. Um, but I, I go back, you know, it, at least from my testimony, I go back to two separate instances. There was one where we went to, um, in, instead of having service in our youth building, we, we went to the big church, we went to the sanctuary and there was, um, there was a sermon preached and, you know, I, I dog on all these things, but I'm sure the sermon was fine, you know, but we had an altar call afterwards. And I remember you know, every head bowed, every eyes closed. That that's not a cliche. That literally happens all the time. And hmm. they did that, and I literally sitting there with my head bowed, and of course I'm peeking just like every other sinner. And my <laughs> friend right next to me gets up, and you know that that I'm peeking. I'm not necessarily paying attention. You know, so you <laughs> where my heart is at, of course. But my friend gets up, and so I'm going well, maybe I should get up too. And of course, I'm a junior high, so I think I'm in eighth grade, seventh grade, something like that. So I'm 12, 13, 14 years old. So I get up <laughs> and we we all walk up to the to the front and there's, there's steps up to the sanctuary or the, the pulpit. And there's probably 10 or 15 of us. And we all do what was called that. And I'm, I'm glad you don't have me on video because I'm not, I wouldn't wouldn't dance for you anyways, but we all did it. All <laughs> and dance. I, I, oh, wow. I, I don't think this was what it was, but I, it was kind of akin to, um, I think it was Chris Tomlin's song. Might not have been, but it was the, I'm not sure if you ever heard of the lift your hands and spin around and see the light that I have found the marvelous light. <sighs> and I, yeah. I really think it was something like that. We all kind of danced and we're like, yeah, you've been saved. Yada, yada, yada. And so then, um, I go home, not go home, but I, uh, two weeks later or so, maybe a month, um, I go to this haunted house thing with the Baptist church in, in Oklahoma city. And it's obviously it's not a haunted house. It's a heaven and hell type of haunted house thing. But you know, you, yeah. you went into to hell and then it's just like freaking 90 degrees in there and you're sweating and people are in, <laughs> yeah, they're in cages and they're like, you know, I was a Christian my whole life, but yada, yada, yada. And of course, there's there's truth to all of this stuff, but it's just kind of gimmicky, you know. It's kind mm-hmm. of scare tactics to get you to be a Christian, and <laughs> and then you went into the next room, and it was like 50 degrees. It was really light, and you're in heaven now, and all the stuff. And then you go into the next room, you sit down, and you hear a dude talk for 20 minutes, and you're like, if you, you know, the the same spiel, um, if you we prayed and if you really meant that prayer go into the next room talk to somebody 
<laughs> and I prayed the prayer and I meant the prayer and I went to go to talk to somebody in the next room, had no idea what was going on, had no idea of the questions being asked to me. Um, and really, I have no doubt that when I was doing those things, I, I thought I might have been sincere. I mean, there might have been some sincerity there in the moment, but um, obviously, uh, in, in, I, since then, um, nothing had changed in my life. There was no love for God. Mm. There was no love for neighbor. There was no desire to be holy. So, of course, looking back on it, neither of those experiences were valid. And it showed me I had no idea what was happening because, of course, if you're um, not a Baptist or not Reformed or not anything like that, then maybe, yeah, you think you can get saved in one day, then go two weeks and get unsaved. But obviously, I thought I got saved twice in the span of two weeks. Obviously, mm. no idea what was going on. Um, so, you know, it was just a, to my detriment, had no idea what was going on and experienced two false conversions. And it just, it, you know, there's a little bit of frustration there because you, you get pronounced saved twice, you know, by leaders who, who count you as a number and then boast about it. But um, so I go through junior high, you know, um, I, you know, typical red-blooded male, you know, I, I did everything that a, that type of male did. Um, I loved girls, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and uh i uh the junior high years that was about the time i um started to cuss like a sailor and obviously did not care for the lord and the same thing with high school high school it got worse i mean you think of everything you think of pornography you know think of all that stuff i delved in it um and senior year i met shell um and, uh, goodness, graduated from college. And then there was one night. So this is where we get into the, the good part. But, oh, I really wish I could remember, remember the exact day. I know many people can't remember their testimonies of the exact day, but I can at least remember the time frame. It was December of 2013. No. Mm. Yeah, December of 2013. So I was kind of uh, connecting this with, you know, being a Christian in college. It was my freshman year of college. So I was on Christmas Christmas break, first Christmas break as a college kid. And I was at my girlfriend's apartment at the time. And <clears throat> the weirdest thing, man. And, you know, I look back at it, I'm just like, that's just providence of God. But we just start talking about our future together. Of course, we had been dating for a year or so at that point and talking about our future. And then for some reason, I started to talk about the future just in general, like how things are going to be in the future. And then all of a sudden I, I bring up the rapture <laughs> and, mm. uh, I just I basically remember saying I I want to make sure that I'm doing the right things when Jesus comes back or if he comes back while we're still alive. And of course, I didn't say I repented my sins and believe in the gospel, but um, you, you don't necessarily need to say that. But I, I, I truly believe that right then and there when I made that statement that he truly 
um, changed my heart. He, he regenerated my heart to repent of my sins and believe in the gospel truly. Because hmm. ever like, it, it, you know, when you become a Christian, some things are night and day and then some things are progression, of course. I remember it was like night and day that I had such a strong conviction over cussing, you know. Uh, right before that I, right before that day, cussing was a second language for me. It was natural. <laughs> but ever ever since that day, it's been so, like, since December of 2013 up till now, I've probably said 30 cuss words since then. Um, <laughs> and the majority of those are probably in 2014, you know. And it, it, obviously it's not all about cussing, but it's like, it was almost, it was, not almost, it was miraculous. Some of the things that he just simply took out of my life that weren't even mm. an issue for me anymore. Of course, uh, I still, I still dealt with pornography for a little bit. Um, I still, that was, that was a really deep issue because I had been in it for so long. Um, but of course that's, that's, it's, it's been a long while since I've dabbled into any of that. Um, he just, man, he just, he just saved me and he did mm. it. He did it like he does with everybody. He did it miraculously. He did it with his own grace and his own mercy. And it's just ever since he did that, um, there was just a turn in my life and not only over sins that I repented of, but there was a desire for the Lord. You know, it's kind of like when you get saved, you, you begin to love the things you once hated and you, uh, you know, hate the things he once loved. So now I love God and hate my sin and so on and so forth. Whereas they used to love my sin and hate God. And it's just, I look back on it. And every time I ever doubt my salvation nowadays, I look back on that and see the evidence of what he's done in my life. So with that, um, <laughs> connecting it with college. Yeah. I, I get saved my freshman year of college. And so I think, spring semester of 14 i'm taking biology and i'm having to learn evolution and all that craziness and my mm. faith my faith is being tested already and wow i think that was honestly around the time that ken ham and i can't think of the guy's name uh, Bill Nye, the science guy. Yeah, yeah. Bill the, Nye, the debate the guy. Yeah, I watched that, yeah. and I remember, I remember thinking to myself, "Why is that even a debate? What, mm. All people believe in God, and it made me question things. Like it made me doubt my faith, and it made me doubt. It made me doubt if God even existed because I was like, how is this even a question that people have to ask? You know, am I is God even there? Blah blah blah, and though there were times I'm sure I sinned in that place where you should never doubt God, of course, but it helped me. It helped me remain strong because it helped me um, educate myself. I mean, I got so much into apologetics and learned all hmm. the arguments and learned all the evidential stuff. I learned all the presuppositional stuff, all of those things. And so it really, it, it I, I remember many times I've, I've heard or, you know, read Tim Keller talk about doubt your doubts or um, sometimes hmm. doubting is good because it leads to your faith uh, strengthening. And it's very true. Um, but yeah, I, I got into biology class and had learned all about evolution. And so I'm learning all this 
ape to me and stuff. And it's like, I just, it's just none of it. I don't believe any of it, but it's still making me question things. And of course, um, I was awful at biology. I, I do not enjoy <laughs> And the whole class, I am doing off. Like I, I literally had to go to my professor and say, hey, can you retest me or can you give me a better grade? Because I think I was either failing or had a D. And, you know, he was gracious with me. And then I think we had three tests. Um, the two tests were awful. I think I made a D and a C on them. And then we get to the last test, which was over evolution. And I make a B on it. My best grade on a test was one over. I disagreed with most. It just, so I, I dealt with that. And of course, I, I finally transitioned to the mass communications department. And I remember the first, gosh, you know, I was, I, I think any Christian is a radical Christian. You know, I think you have to be in some circumstances, but I was much more zealous in my faith per se during that time because I was just learning all these new things and the first day of school of college in sophomore or junior year something like that I wore a shirt that said uh, Jesus 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 till the day I die in my you know my liberal class and everybody's <laughs> staring, at me, staring at me like I'm a weirdo and I'm just <laughs> I'm like I don't care what you think about me um and really, the, the sad part is this is kind of a squirrel, or this is kind of a um, rabbit hole to go down, but the shirt was made by uh, Clayton Jennings. I don't know if you know who that is, but no, he was a really well-known evangelist, and then he got kind of like the Carl Lentz thing. I don't know if you heard about Carl Lentz. Oh, yeah. But okay. He, uh, he had this real big fallout, and he's not a good man. But that's besides the point, but it's just, yeah, the, the you know, becoming a Christian. Then I had to deal with college. I had to deal with the university and being a Christian in college. Gosh, we talk about being a Christian in college. Some people talk about being a Christian in seminary and people lose their faith in seminary. And hmm. it's craziness to me. But I, I really think that being in college as a Christian actually strengthened my faith because it helped me come to grips with, yeah, people aren't, not everybody's a Christian and you're going to have to learn what you believe. Um, hmm. It was it was an experience, but I, I think it was a I think it was a good experience overall. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say the the old you know, you know cliche phrase "baptism by fire" kind of defines your experience as a young Christian being thrown into a a school with a predominantly liberal viewpoint. There's a lot that you would have to reckon with, and <laughs> it is interesting to think about you know when you're being taught you know, principles and perspectives and uh, a worldview that is opposite from what your faith would cling to. Mm -hmm. um, those are some pretty dire moments when, like you said, you could rightly doubt what you have come to believe. And I think it's a testament to the Holy Spirit that he doesn't allow, a, allow that doubt sometimes to make us lose our faith altogether. Now, that's not mm -hmm. always the case, but I am, I'm thankful for your testimony to the fact that you clearly understood um, what the Spirit was doing in you through those years, through those moments, and uh, he has allowed you to come out the stronger for it. So that's a, that's a blessing. That's a huge, huge testament to what God does. Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, tell me then also about your, your seminary experience. I, too, am 
attending uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm currently working on my MDiv, and uh, I'm really thankful for the experiences that I've had there so far. I'm still kind of early on in that process, but just tell me, tell me what kind of led you to that and, and how that sort of has also shaped you and helped you uh, become a, uh, a, a budding theologian, let's say. <laughs> budding theologian, I love that. Um, <laughs> so I was actually not going to go to seminary first. Um, when I was still in college, I was currently in, well, yeah, I wasn't going to go to seminary first because uh, although I knew my parents would probably help out, with funding, I didn't care to, to deal with the, the money part of it. And just, and at that point I knew I don't necessarily need to go to seminary because I was at, I think I was at my church we've been at now for four years, Sovereign Grace Bible Church, you know, we're reformed Baptists. So we, we obviously place an emphasis on learning theology and whatnot. But so I knew that I'd be okay with not going to seminary. Um, but my, uh, my aunt came to town one, one weekend and, she told me that if, if I wanted to go to seminary, then uh, she would pay for it. And, you know, of course, well, I can't not take you up on that offer. Um, and at first, mm. Well, no, I will say this. At first, we were at a non-denominational church. Um, and so at first, I was going to go to Liberty University. But <clears throat> we had then switched to Sovereign Grace, which was Southern Baptist. And so then I, I was going to go online to Southwestern. And of course, uh, the whole the whole rhetoric with Southwestern is they just, you know, I hate to use the term nowadays because just so much connotations, but they're they hate Calvinists, man. <laughs> and I do not want to deal with the constant uh, just argumentation and belittling and just the. I mean, I know a lot of Reformed folk have have gone there, you know, but I just don't want to deal with it. And so then I, you know, I wanted to go to Southern, but Southern was really expensive. And so then I finally came upon Midwestern. I'm like, this is six hours away. I can still walk there if I want to. And they are obviously not strictly uh, Calvinistic, but a lot of the leadership there is Calvinistic. And so I went there and it's, it was, it was a great experience. Um, I really, really, really wish it would have been residential. Um, I would have loved to have moved up there for a couple of years and, and, and been in the classroom, but it just wasn't in the cards. It wasn't, wasn't there. You know, my wife has been a, a public school uh, special ed teacher for five years now. So it's not like we can just leave up and her quit her job. I think God would have had to have spoken to us directly. <laughs> I'd say mm-hmm. the joke, of course, but um, so did Midwestern online start of, uh, 2017 did it for two years because i did a um, master's of theological studies i wanted to do the mdiv but i just there was a part of me that didn't want to be in school for four more years Um, (laughs) and i did the preaching and pastoral ministry track and it was great i mean learning from the professors and you know there was some frustrating aspects of it because you're doing everything online. There's not much personal interaction. The most interaction you're getting is the, uh, uh, the discussion posts every week. And, hmm. you know, it, it, there, there's obviously, so you're, you're having to deal with doing all of this without the real personal interaction and learning from other people and all those sorts of things. And even with the professors, 
there were a couple times when there was uh, there's a lot of frustration because I just had a uh, well I didn't just have it but I had a church history class with a stickler man. I mean this guy I will name his name because he was he was an adjunct professor, but I I, I couldn't do anything but earn a C. Um, you know, you make a discussion post and you meet the requirements, you'll probably get an A on it. Uh, every jot and tittle, he he uh, edited my paper, he deducted points. I remember having an argument with him once over whether to capitalize biblical. Now, I I, I don't capitalize the word biblical. Um, I know some people do, I know some people don't. But I'm like going, I don't think you should, like, because he, he marked my paper off for, cap, uh, for not capitalizing biblical. And I'm like going, I don't think I'm supposed to capitalize that word. And then finally, after the argument ensued, he we just both took a look at the MBTS style guide, and it's not in there. So he's like, okay, I'll give you that point back. And I was like, oh, great. Well, I still have a 75 in the class. Well, <laughs> come to learn, and like, he's this way with, he was that way with every student. Like I had a conversation with another student. I was like, yeah, he, he grades my papers hard. And so I say that to say he wasn't necessarily a bad professor. He just, boy, he, he might be the only professor I've ever uh, been under that literally graded every last single bit of wor every word. I mean, he was just a stickler in the truest sense of the word. And so it was very frustrating. It made, learning church history not enjoyable because uh, th those eight weeks were not fun because I was also dealing with another class too. I took two at a time, but I also had the privilege and I just, I love this. I had the privilege of learning theology one because there's theology one and theology two learn theology one under Matthew Barrett. Um, mm. That was really fun. And I really enjoyed getting to, to know him a little bit because um, gosh, you know, talk about budding theologians. He's, he is coming up very quickly, becoming more well-known. So it was really, really fun to learn under him. Um, and, you know, given it being online, um, and I had learned so much stuff in church before seminary. So I will say not to be conceited. I hope it doesn't come across that way. But I had learned or known 80% of the stuff I learned in seminary already. I already knew about it. Hmm. There was some stuff like Old Testament survey stuff and all that good stuff that I didn't know about that was beneficial. But a lot of it I knew, um, whether it was just a good reminder or just thinking of it in different aspects or being able to discuss things with people. Obviously, that was beneficial, but a lot of it I knew. And so it was a, a lot of it was truly mundane or redundant, but it was still very good. Um and then I graduated in uh, December of 2019. That was a wonderful time. I obviously shook Dr. Allen's hand. I got to meet Owen Strand. Um, hmm. I met I met Jared C. Wilson. I, mm -hmm. I didn't get to have a conversation with him, but as I walked out of graduation, I was able to shake his hand, tell him who it was. And I was just simply able to express um, how much his writing has benefited me. And it was just cool. Hmm good to you know hear him for 30 seconds because he's played an instrumental role in um just m my learning process but also my writing um i think i think my writing um if it looks like any other person's writing it might be jared's 
just a more conversational, like you, obviously you'll, you'll throw in some academic words, but just more conversational writing. But so anyways, yeah, sem seminary, seminary was a wonderful time. Um, I would love one day to be a professor, uh, but that requires me to get my doctorate. And I just, man, unless I'm to be 40 years old and I'm like, Hey, I want to go back to school. I just don't see it happening. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I found similar um I find a lot of similarities with what you've described in terms of my experiences just in terms of uh, the frustrations with online learning. I'm I will say though the way I learn because I did a a summer course and it was pretty much all lecture based and I found out very quickly that uh, I've it's been a while since I've gone back to school and, you know, I've started back and doing seminary now. And so I, I found that in those intervening years, my ability to process and handle lectures has greatly diminished. <laughs> I just can't learn in that sort of format. So the idea of learning through my own processing of information and then especially doing it through the avenue of writing has uh, it's just something that I enjoy, but I think it's definitely the way I process information. I, I so I found, yeah, I found the, that sort of sort of mode of learning to be very beneficial. Go ahead. I didn't want to cut you off. No, you're fine. I cut you off. Um, it just <laughs> me think that uh, there was at least one negative aspect of this. And I think, gosh, you can ask probably 100% of seminarians this question, and you'll probably get the same answer. I was a bookworm before seminary. And <laughs> yeah. um, the amount of reading I had to do, the amount of reading I had to do but didn't do because I just didn't want to read it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't – within those two years, I might have read one book for pleasure. And hmm. so I say that – say it just, it just took away my desire to read. Of course, I get out of seminary, and now I've, I've regained that desire. But it takes it, – it, it doesn't make reading pleasurable for a couple of years or however long you're in seminary. <laughs> Yeah, I've found that to be very true as well. Um, I'm reading for seminary and I'm reading for sermon study, but I don't do a lot of quote-unquote pleasure reading, mm -hmm. and I'm finding that to be a little bit frustrating. I have a, a line of books that I've already lined up that once I eventually graduate that I'm, I can't wait to dig into and, and just d uh, digest a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, but like you, uh, I've, I've found that the margins – uh, there's not a lot of margins uh, for pleasure reading when you're going through uh, seminary training. And I, I've taken the approach, at least in my own experience, to not rush through it. I, I mean, I want to get done as quickly as I can, but, you know, I'm finding that being a young pastor and a young dad and a young husband uh, to take up a lot of my time. So actually, I'm going to be taking some breaks from my seminary classes next year and just mm -hmm. let myself have some some time to breathe before I you know, just wear myself out in, in academic courses. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Cause I can feel like that could get old after a while. <laughs> right. But I, um, I, I had a thought and I can't remember what it was, but, um, it, it, it left me. So it's okay. <laughs> but I'm really glad to hear of your experiences at, um, seminary and how it's formed you. I would say similarly too, to what you shared is that there's a lot of things that I've found, um, as I've been going through different courses and reading various textbooks, that it's not necessarily that I'm learning new information. I think rather many times it's 
I'm being, what I've thought before is being solidified. And I think what has been most apparent to me through some of these courses is the grave sort of um, distrust, maybe. I don't know if that's too strong of a word, but the grave sort of distrust of the... Uh, of how we got the scriptures has mm-hmm. been greatly yeah. brought to my mind in academic and quote unquote scholarly circles where they derive the sources for scriptural materials to various historical papers and uh, and whatnot and how they uh, sort of disseminate where those sources come from and mm-hmm. to make sure that there's a, a quote unquote human uh, source for these Uh, scriptural materials. I think that's what has been most frustrating is because every single textbook has the same sort of dialogue, which is there's a lot of uh, debate on where we got these. And this particular book is actually a combination of various materials that you can find and blah, blah, blah. And I don't mean to be so um, dismissive of those viewpoints, but I just found it to be almost a little bit disheartening because I feel like if, if you're not very convinced of the fact that the scriptures were god breathed mm-hmm. and they were they were written by obviously human authors but they are it is essentially a spiritual book that you can find it very a, a lot of evidence and a lot of sort of pillars to stand on to have your faith in the bible kind of crumble a little bit and i, I found that to be a little bit frustrating but i don't know if you recognize the same thing or not i don't i'm, I'm not sure yeah you talk about being dismissive of scripture and whatnot it makes me think of the fact that the first class i had was old testament survey the first mm, yeah first i'm in that class right now yeah so you probably unless it's just different classes for different people but the first week we went over the documentary hypothesis now i had never heard yep. that in my life but obviously I read about it, and all these people telling me, you know, Moses didn't write the, the Torah, and so it's just like from the very beginning, um, we're having to talk about people, people of faith that uh, do not, not necessarily take what Scripture says, but try to reward it and try to say it's not Scripture, and somebody else wrote it, so then it could be distorted, and it's all this, all this stuff. So it was crazy to see. Hmm. I, f- I found the same thing. Uh, I was introduced to that idea. Yeah, I, I grew up in a very, I would say, conservative home, Christian home. My dad and my grandfather were both independent Baptist pastors. And so they obviously have a very particular view yeah. of Scripture, which I'm very thankful for. And I think that the, the sort of, it's almost like, and perhaps some people would say that this is too naive, but I almost don't have a questioning spirit when it comes to the scripture, it's to me, uh, in my faith, it's already an assumption that it is true and that it is without error and that it is God breathed. And it's not for me a question of whether those things are backed up by history. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and I've written about this throughout my time in Old Testament survey one, and I'm in the middle of Old Testament survey two, as we speak. And I found it to be very true throughout all of that is just once you question the historicity of scripture, I feel like a lot of other things begin to fall and become oh, yeah. dismantled. And it's a very slippery, slippery slope when you make that decision to let's, let's, let's play the, the expert and make sure we have 
have, you know, our human sort of man-made experts claim authority over what is scriptural and what is not and what constitutes the scriptures and what doesn't. And I feel like that that's what can that that can be a, a, a something that can really easily happen if you don't have that sort of really firm solid faith in the scripture so to speak so yeah, anyways you break, you break the the reliability of scripture down you break everything else down so it's, it's like yep. such an emphasis on sola scriptura and we can amen an yeah. now you mentioned um jared being a inspiration to you and your writing um and we'll talk about your writing in a little bit just but who who else would you say has really inspired you as you found yourself developing not only just your theology but your faith and even just the practical side of your writing as as, as well sure so i'll give you a funny story when i first became a christian yeah. i was working at a local or at, at our local um country club golf course and um, it was a rather boring day, and I got on my iPhone and went to the bookstore on my iPhone, and I, I came across, of course, at the time, I have no idea who this is, but I came across this guy, and I remember pronouncing his name, R.C. Sproul. <laughs> this guy, I'll download his book. It was one of his little booklets, you know, you know what is prayer or something like that, and talk about providence, because um, he has been of course he's passed away now but he was the biggest influence um just as a christian but definitely uh, writing as well obviously along with jared c wilson but rc scroll it was academic writing it was professional writing but it, it was conversational and he man like the holiness of god for example that first chapter um, or you know the first couple of pages about that story of his conversion and all of those things it grips you and um, I, you know, I don't know if I'll have any of that type of stuff in my book because I'm certainly not R.C. Sproul but it <laughs> helps you obviously you've heard it you know, the more you read the better writer you become and I've read so much R.C. Sproul I've read so much Jared C. Wilson um Another one is uh, Tim Keller. Now, I know Tim Keller is getting a bad rep nowadays, but obviously there are some things I disagree with politically speaking and all this stuff. I just think it's just different demographics with him. But I have read so much Tim Keller, um, and obviously that's like straight up academic. And so I think a lot of my writing, if I ever delve into academic stuff, you know, say the big buzzwords, justification, imputation, all this stuff, kind of comes from him and kind of comes from John Piper because I've obviously obviously read a lot of Piper too and um, I remember picking up The Reason for God one day and I read it all in two or three days the thing's massive it's like 400 pages so I can't read it in a day I, I read it almost non-stop um, so he's been formidable for me I will say there was there was a time when I tried to read um I read some of the Puritans, but I, I tried to read John. Yeah, um, tried is the operative uh, word there. The death of Christ. I read uh, Packer's Ford, <laughs> and that was about it. And I gave it to a friend, and I was like, here, you can have it because I can't do this. <laughs> so, but yeah, uh, really, I think if there's any author that's been most influential just in my writing, um, it's been Jared C. Wilson just because of yeah. the writing yeah. style. Well, and I, I, I'd like to talk about that too, because uh, I've, I like talking with um, 
I don't mean to this to be uh, too demeaning, but uh, young guys like yourself, because uh, I put myself in that same category, as I'm learning uh, what it means to be a theologian, what it means to be a pastor, and to keep those things in balance, uh, I too have tried to surround myself with as many voices. But one thing that I have also tried to do as well, especially after becoming a pastor, is to trust the Holy Spirit's work in my own life in order to say, I, I don't need to just copy other people's writing right. um, in terms of like making that the my voice, trusting uh, that the Holy Spirit has given me a specific voice and a specific message to share. So how have you have you found that to be the case for you? How what would you say is a, a moment when you could say like, yeah, I, I think I've I've found my voice, or would you say that that's something still um, you're developing uh, in your own course of of faith and practice and theology? I think it's both. Um, I yeah. think it's an aspect that I'm still trying to gain my own voice, trying to gain my own sense of writing style, um, and I, I know that. But, but but at the same time, I, I do already know a little bit because I, I know that I'm not uh, the type of writer that's going to be very academic. I want to write like I'm talking to somebody over coffee. Um, mm. I think that's always going to be my writing style because I, I I want to come across to the Christian, but I also want to not write over people's heads. And I, I sincerely don't say that as an insult to other people because it does come across that way. It comes across condescending, but I don't want to talk to people and then not flesh out what I'm saying so they don't understand what I'm saying. Um, mm. There are many times in the book that, uh, that if I say reform or if I say justification or if I say something else, that I'll, uh, I'll either flesh it out a little bit or I'll just make a footnote explaining what that means. Um, so I'm, I'm still trying to find a lot of my voice, I think, because I'm still, it wasn't long ago that I've finally given more intentional thought to being more active on my blog and, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, and yeah, I'm still learning. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, not, not just how to write, but to, how to come across and. So just simply the writing style and in all sorts of things. Gosh, I've just so many more things to learn. <laughs> oh yeah. I found the same thing too. And I think that's one of the benefits of, of having a blog now that it can be, I guess, depending on how you approach it, it can be different for different people, but I've always found it to be such a, a healthy space to just have a, have that space to think out loud. And that's really what I've, found um what, what i found in my own sort of experience blogging for several years is just having a space to think out loud about a particular topic and let those uh those thoughts solidify and uh, i'm really thankful for that experience because um and, and for that kind of freedom i've never really done it to you know make a living off of it or anything like that it's always been just something that's there that allows me to think out loud and to and to uh, hone something that I, I found a lot of joy in and uh, that's to write. And I, I would say the same for you that you've, you've, you find a lot of joy in that and it's, it's mm -hmm. good to have that sort of space yeah. to be able to do that. Absolutely. Um, well, let's talk about your book though. I'm so excited to see, um, see a book come out of, out of a young guy's thoughts on ministry and in theology and the gospel mm -hmm. and truth. And um, 
your book is called Gospel Smugness, which is a really cool name. It's pretty catchy, so I hope that it catches on. So uh, tell me about it. Tell me about what inspired you to write it, and why do you think a book about the smugness of the gospel is necessary uh, for us right now? <laughs> so this all came about because I, um, I wrote a blog back in May of 2019, I believe, called The Gospel uh, is Offensive, But You Shouldn't Be. And it was actually a blog post I wrote in like, I probably wrote it in an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was on WordPress. I did it on my phone. You know, it wasn't a formal get your computer out and think about this for a long time. I just kind of got my phone out and wrote about it because I was thinking about it. And I almost didn't publish it. Like I, I, I just, for some reason, you know, just like every other author, you write something, you're like, no, I almost didn't publish it, but obviously I did. And the day after, or the day after that, I, I pull up my WordPress app just to see any stats, you know, cause I'm, an, I'm a blogger that's just trying to get some type of voice, you know? So I'm trying to see if one or two people have read it. You know, maybe, maybe my wife has read it on Facebook, you know, and there's this just big number of views and I'm like going, what's going on? I literally um, called WordPress and I was like, is this a glitch? <laughs> and I'm like, why do I have this many views, all of this stuff? But then I go down and they were there like, no, it's not a glitch. Congratulations. And I go down to the, there's like a, a referrer part section where it shows you where people are seeing it so they can go to the blog and it says challies.com and I'm like going wait what and so I go to Chally's Twitter page because he does the a la carte you know every day mm. and he has shared it and I'm like going what like how does Chally's Tim Chally's shared my blog like how does he even know it existed so yeah I got all of this traffic, um, of course, it still might be minuscule to other blogs. I think it, to this day, I think that blog post got probably 2,000 views. Um, and it also got shared to church leaders. It got shared um, also on monergism.com. So those are, you know, just Chally's was kind of the moneymaker, so to speak. Didn't make money off of it, but just the traffic-wise but it got picked up a couple of other places. It was just really neat to see. And it solidified um, me knowing I want to write a book, but it also showed me without me being uh, feeling conceited about myself. It showed me that I'm actually a good writer. It showed me that I'm actually creating content that people want to see. Um, and so I, at that point I was like, I want to write a book, but what do I, what do I want to write about? Then I said, maybe I should write about this. Maybe can I flesh this out into a book format? And it wasn't, but probably a year ago. Yeah. A year ago this month that I actually started to write it. Um, and it was weird. I didn't really make an outline and just kind of started to write. And then I put off the writing for a bit. Um, and then probably not, but four or five months ago, maybe not even that I started to actually flesh it out more and, um, you know, think of more chapters and angles in which I want to do it. And you can get, certainly for me, I got self-conscious because at points I was talking about things in the book that didn't necessarily uh, 
strictly correlate with the the premise of the book, but it, it was a byproduct of the premise. So, which brings me to that point. I like the title because it's very catchy, and I think it's going to grab people's attention, and so that's what I want. Um, but I, I do think the title itself doesn't encapture the full premise of the book because the whole premise of the book is, you know, we, we have an offensive gospel. We have to, to share this offensive gospel to an offended culture, definitely nowadays, while we aren't being offensive ourselves. I mean, how difficult is that? <laughs> have an offensive message to people who are offended all the time Let's make sure you're not a jerk in the process. Yeah. And so that's the whole point of the book. And of course, I flesh that out and dealing with different aspects. And I, I think hopefully that resonates with a lot of readers. But um, the heart of the book kind of, if you want to name a specific group of Christians that I'm speaking to, we can do it. I am absolutely speaking to Reformed culture because mm. we told that's probably the biggest demographic that has this biggest issue. I, I don't know why this is because it's like, we believe in the doctrines of grace. You would think we'd be the most gracious Christians out of us all, but we're not. Um, mm. have, and this is not just with reformed Christians, of course, but with all of us, we have this uncanny ability to, as we're sharing the gospel, whether we're street preaching, whether we're just on the streets, going door to door, having a cup of coffee with people, whatever, um, we're, we might be sharing the gospel correctly. We might be saying you need, you need to repent. We might be going through Ray Comfort's, you know, spiel about the law and the gospel, which is perfectly well and good. You should do that. But all the while, we're kind of, whether we're being snooty, condescending, rude, obnoxious, whether we're whatever you want, whatever example you want to give, we're coming across um, with smugness. <laughs> and whether we see it or we don't, it um, it puts people off. Hmm. That person is already put off or not, it puts them off even more. Um, and I, I say this in the book, many encounters we have, there, there may be many encounters we have that the, the reason the person comes or, or leaves the conversation more frustrated than they were is because of you. It wasn't because the gospel is offensive, but because you were just simply a jerk in the process. And hmm. it, it speaks to the fact that our tone matters. Now, I know that a lot of Christians might, they might not necessarily disagree with it, but they might place a bigger or less of an emphasis on your tone, which there's certainly some nuance there. But our tone absolutely matters in our witness. I mean, we want to be Christians who are gracious in our witness. We want our words to be seasoned with salt. I believe that's Ephesians or Colossians or one of those two. But um, we don't want to be abrasive in our conversations. I mean, surely we don't want to be that way. We don't want to think that, let me just share the gospel and pray God opens our eyes, which is certainly true. But we certainly play a role in it. We play a role in how it comes across. We play a role in how our tone of voice comes across and whether we're coming across as condescending or holier than thou or um, goodness, like part of it is just simply lacking empathy, Brad. Like 
there are many times we may share the gospel. We may be frustrated that they don't get it or that they're just not responding well. And we just forget that we were in their shoes. And so yeah. when we, hmm. when we lack empathy, we come across offensive, um, whether implicitly or explicitly. And so that's a big reason why the book was written. Um, of course, I fleshed that, fleshed that out with, you know, uh, I talk about the first chapter is just over, um, over the topic as a whole. And then I flesh it out with, um, social media use. I mean, my goodness, Mm. (laughs) you take this issue and then you magnify it by times 10 on social media and how Christians interact on social media. Um, think of an example. This isn't, so some of the stuff I write in the book is not necessarily extremely connected with evangelism, but I won't say his name, but on Twitter, this guy basically, he, he tried to um, do kind of a gotcha moment with Mark Dever and Tim Keller. And of course, this isn't a witness encounter, but it, it other unbelievers see this. And you're giving your witness on social media. Just it's crap now because of how you're acting. But this this guy who is fairly well known. I mean, people know him because he's affiliated with a different ministry. But he went online, and if you're on Twitter still, you might have seen this, so you might know who I'm talking about. But um, he went online and he saw that Mark Dever and Tim Keller, who respectively are in uh, Washington D.C. and then New York City. They're both registered. I think you know exactly what I'm talking about because you had an argument with somebody on Facebook about this. But um, they're both registered Democrats. Well, okay, why are these evangelical leaders registered Democrats? Well, it's pragmatism. I mean, they can't – any uh, leader who comes out of those areas is going to be Democratic, so it's a strategy. Well, this person was just flat out – I mean, obviously in my opinion, but like – he was just a jerk about it, and he said, mark them, put them under church discipline, all this stuff. And I'm just like, listen, we can disagree on this stuff, but we have to remember outsiders are seeing this. Um, <laughs> some, some I talk about in the book about the, the qualifications for a pastor. Um, Christians should not look at First Timothy and Titus and say, those don't apply to me. Now, of course— not all of the qualifications in those passages are going to apply to you because there's a specific context, but 90% of them do apply to you. You shouldn't be a drunkard. Uh, you should you should be above reproach. You shouldn't look at that and say, as a Christian or as a lay Christian, I don't have to be above reproach. You absolutely should be above reproach. You should have a good reputation in your community, in your local church, you should have a good reputation in the world on social media. And so when you post stuff like this, your reputation precedes you. Your hmm. reputation goes south very quickly. And so I just think the frustrating part is it just doesn't make you look like an idiot, it, like, like a moron. It makes the Christian faith look like we're just idiots. <laughs> like we just, it, it, it dare I say it does a disservice to the gospel and brings reproach on the name of Christ. Like that's yes, it does. I really think it does. And so yeah. that's just one example. Um, I talk about guarding, guarding our mouths. Um, I talk about, I, I do get into more meaty things. I talk about having truth without love and then love without truth. And then of course I talk about having both, which 
every Christian should have. And um, I, I, I was just, I was glad to be able to think of more things to talk about that were connected to the overall premise. Um, it, it just, you know, I want people to read it. I want as many people as God wants to read it. And I hope many people read it. And if I make money off of it, great. If I don't, great. Um, for me, my main goal was to get it published. And of course, um, whether two publishing companies that I have submitted a proposal to, whether they respond to me or not, um, it's going to be self-published. So I'm going to love being able to see it in print. <laughs> but, um, that's, that's going to be the biggest accomplishment is simply to have something in print. And I know that that's what I can hang my hat on at the end of the day once it's fully out. Yeah. I just find a lot of resonance with many of the things that you're talking about, you know, and I've read, of course, um, the blog that kind of inspired this whole thing. And I just find so much profoundness in its message, just because <laughs> I guess I do uh, know who you're talking about. I'm not on Twitter anymore, just because I find it so toxic. Yeah, um, but I will say that um, there is an air of smugness, to use your word, in which the Christian can come across in a way that is defensive. And as you say, that we don't need to be because the gospel is already offensive in and of itself. Absolutely. And I do, we're recording this just for all transparency on the Saturday after the election uh, and lots of stuff is up in the air in terms of that. And I don't mean to turn this into a political conversation, yeah. but what I found most apparent in this political and election year cycle is the aggravation of divisiveness between mm -hmm. believers yeah. on political issues. And I, I find it so sad and detrimental. It's almost like we're beating ourselves up. And I, I, I've even remarked on this. It's just, it's, it's sad to me when somebody outside of the church can see the church beating itself up mm -hmm. uh, because of our, um, maybe pietistic devotion to the things of truth. Like you say, uh, truth without love is probably going to be seen as offensive. And that doesn't mean that love can't be without truth, but oftentimes mm -hmm. uh, our truth is not always given the air of love that it needs to be heard appropriately. Right. And that is to our shame. That is to our detriment. And I think that oftentimes what is lost when we are, are, crying out for truth to be heard is the gospel is lost and that's to me is the saddest the saddest reality to kind of recognize and come to is is that one so and that's why i think that your words are necessary um not just for 2020 for years to come mm -hmm. um for christians to remember their place um and i, I think it, it goes back to what you were saying before that we kind of forget where we come from and i i, I think of saint paul's words to the Corinthians where he talks about such were some of you. And he, he says that so often to the churches that he wrote to reminding them of who they were prior to the grace of the gospel coming into their lives. And so I think that it's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs when the church forgets where it came from and forgets too, that they are just sinners saved by grace. And, um, and, and such is why we need that message. Absolutely. And that's, gosh, I love that you brought that verse up. I mean, to come to think of it, I'm not even sure I put the verse in the chapter, but 
chapter one. Yeah, it's not the introduction, I believe. It's either well, it's either the intro or chapter one. The first story I talk about is actually something that happened at ECU. Um, there was one time when a street preacher came to ECU and set up shop in front of the chapel, had an air air speaker. What's the word I'm looking for? What are those things? Open called? air preacher. Well, no, the the mic he uses. There's a term. It doesn't matter. Um, he's he's amplifying his voice, and you know, saying all these things. And he's man. It's like he didn't read John three seventeen. You know, mm. it's not. It's like he's being so condemning. He's saying you're sodomites, homosexuals. You know, races are not racism, but a, a Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. All this stuff, and I'm like going. You know, what he's saying is true, but number one, if you do your research, know who you're speaking to. Like we talked about earlier, ECU is a very liberal campus. Um, he, It was the most frustrating thing in the world to see because all I want, because I wasn't there. If I would have been there, I probably would have gone. All I wanted to do was go beside him, direct everybody's, because a crowd had formed at this point, because it was a spectacle, you know. And a crowded forum that I wanted to go up and say, guys, like, or at least tell him, read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through whatever. You know, yeah, sodomites and homosexuals and fornicators and adulterers, all these people um, will inherit, uh, or, you know, will not inherit the kingdom of God. As such for some of you, so it's just like, dude, yes, preach against this stuff, but preach Christ too, because he wasn't preaching the gospel. He wasn't preaching redemption he was only preaching condemnation and i want to say dude they're already condemned you mm. know you can have these conversations with other people like in private or even um, after you're done preaching that's good and well if people want to have a constructive conversation but what you're doing is doing nothing good it, it's it's not like it's kind of like i don't know if you've ever heard of stephen anderson or not but like mm-hmm. it's just like you're preaching all these things and you're being a just obnoxious jerk in the process and then you get backlash and you're like oh i'm being persecuted no you're just a jerk (laughs) (laughs) no self-awareness and it was the most frustrating thing in the world because it's like this is exactly what i'm talking about we have to come back to preaching the gospel we must not cower in fear about being offensive because the message is offensive but Mm. if we're not um vigilant about it we will be offensive ourselves yes Yes, and I think that that's why we have to just let Christ speak, because remember, I I love the verses in John 1 where it talks about through him comes the ultimate and the fullness of grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ. That's that's not in us. We can't um, reach those ultimate peaks of of equalizing and and keeping an equilibrium, grace and truth. Oftentimes we veer towards one side or the other to our detriment. But that's why, again, I'm reminded of that quote. I don't know if it's, you know, apocryphal or not from Spurgeon, where he talks about, you know, letting the scripture speak as an untamed lion. Mm -hmm. We don't need, we don't need to do anything else, make it something that it already is. And I think that your reference of John 3.17 is so, so apropos to that conversation, just because it, it's, it speaks to Jesus's primary mission, which is salvation. The yeah. world exists already in a state of condemnation. We don't need to make it so. We don't need right. to. Uh, yes, I think there is a time and a place uh, as a faithful law gospel theologian to remind 
folks of their condemnation that perhaps they are blind to or what have you. But the primary message of the Christian faith is one of salvation and remission of sins. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes that can be lost through our our just thirst for our I mean, particular <laughs> viewpoint to be seen. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. It's, it's kind of clear to see. Um, it's kind of the same, yeah. same way I feel about the guy on Twitter that talked about Mark Dever. Um, to me, it just reveals you got a massive ego. Uh, it's kind of a shock value type of thing. I, I, I will say a different situation. And this this is semantics, okay? And it's a different situation, but it, it does concern having your witness online being distorted. And I'll say his name because he's well-known and people already know about it, Jeff Durbin. I mean, I don't know mm-hmm. if you saw it, but the whole um, talking about the woke church and using harsh language and uh, mm-hmm. saying BS. And I'm just like, you know, whether or not it's permissible is not even the question I have. I don't think that's the question to ask. Is it helpful? Is it helpful for you to use those terms in any context? Um, it could be, possibly, in a proper context. It could be. I don't know. But definitely in that context, it's not It's not helpful. Whether it's a sin or not, it, it's not helpful. Um, it's shock value. And they he, he knew what it was going to create by his Facebook post. He knew it was going to be controversial. And then he made like an hour-long podcast about the reaction. I'm like, dude, it, it, we're seeing right through it. You did this for shock value. So it, to me, you're damaging your witness. Um, it, it's just it's just silly. It's just silliness. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, it, it speaks to... The day and age in which we live, and, and I don't—I've had conversations about this. Maybe, maybe you can provide some insight. But um, I've had conversations with many about this whole notion and just the reality in which we live today, which is just that everything is seen as something that we have to choose a side on. We are such a polarized society, and and I think that what and to bring it full circle is just to say that that polarization has even has snuck into the church snuck sneaked oh, yeah. sneaked into the church <laughs> and yeah. i would i would i would say that that is to our shame mm-hmm. that that is so um and uh, like you know a, a really silly example of this is that i i recently have and i still feel this because i am i don't know about you but i'm a huge fan of Star Wars Episode Eight, The Last Jedi. So my, now, listen, my wife is in the other room with our daughter playing. She loves Star Wars. I cannot <laughs> stand it. Okay. I, I, love her, <laughs> I love her enough that I tried to watch the first episode or whatever you want to call it. Uh huh. Um, it bored me. <laughs> and that <laughs> that is okay. You, but like, I just can't do it, man. <laughs> I just remember though when episode eight came out in 2018, it was such it was received with such vitriol, and it, and depending on whether you liked it or whether you didn't, you were seen as a person who was smart or a person who was dumb. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that polarization oh, yeah. speaks to, or especially over something as innocuous as a Star Wars film. Yeah. And you could say this about anything that you could insert anything that would make something polarized. And that polarization has come into the church, where as long as you are like me and agree with the things that I agree with, 
and you uphold the same sort of level of theological triage that I do, yep. then we can be friends, we can be agree, and then you're part of the kingdom that, yeah. that I say. And I, I just want to sh- shout to people, you don't get to, si- get to decide who is in the kingdom and who right. isn't. Um, <laughs> and it's not a polarizing thing. The kingdom is is not that polarizing. The only polarization is faith and unfaith, and that is yes, it's a lot less perhaps demonstrable. Um, it's it's not something that we can always hang our hats on because some people's faith may look different than you. But guess what? You don't get to decide the merits of who and who doesn't get to to, to belong in the kingdom. Absolutely. So three things. So number one, the three, theological triage thing and not deciding who's in the faith, who's not. So, you know, per your point, the conversation you had with this individual on Facebook about um, uh, being able to vote Democratic, okay, Um, I'm kind of in the middle of both of you, okay? So Hmm. there's one aspect of me that's like, no, I don't think a Christian should ever vote for a Democrat. Um, I I think it's, but I'm not going to go as far to say put them under church discipline. I think it might be sinful just because um, you're still voting for a for a candidate who's going to further push the abortion agenda. But at the same time, per your point, it's like, but I can't, I, I can't fully make that assumption, and I definitely can't say they're not a Christian simply because they vote Democratic. There are other issues at play. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a single issue voter, you know, and I'll probably always be that way, but you know, uh, I'm gonna butcher his name, but Thabiti on on see can't even say his last name. Thabiti, um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You know, he, yes. You know, I disagree with him so much on systematic racism and all of this stuff, and he probably voted for Joe Biden. That's my assumption, but that doesn't make him not a Christian. Um, I disagree with him, but it's like. We make it. We it's kind of like the theological triage. Let's let's decide what is essential, what's secondary, what's tertiary. And this is, it's definitely not essential. Now, if you have somebody who professes to be a Christian, who is okay with abortion, that's a completely separate issue. That would absolutely be worthy of church discipline. Okay, but when you're just simply voting in a pragmatic way, uh, that's semantics. Uh, and then secondly, when we have this attitude just within the church we are adopting it's kind of like what you said we're kind of uh, adopting the culture attitude we're letting the culture influence us more than jesus um and we are giving way to petty argumentation and it's just awful to see because we're just i mean kind of you know the toxic nature of twitter um you don't go out to far to see a theological argument on Twitter get way out of hand. Um, <laughs> yeah. Really. And then lastly, it's, and I talk about this in the book a little bit. If you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, and there's an argument, I feel like somebody has to shout it sometimes and say, you don't have to get into the argument. Like there have been times on Facebook and Twitter where I see an interesting argument, even if it's cordial, where I see an argument and two people are talking, I'm like, I want to get in on this. I'm saying, you don't have to get in on this. What are you going to contribute? Um, And also these two people are having a conversation. Though you have the ability to get into the conversation, 
it, it's almost it's almost disrespectful at that point to jump in and give your own two cents when people aren't necessarily asking for it. Um, mm. it, it it's almost the equivalent of kind of like a coffee shop conversation. You just overhear the conversation and walk up to the table and say, well, abortion is murder, or we'll say, well, that's not a good example because it is. But like, just, you know, insert your petty theological argument. And it's just like, you're not necessarily showing me that you um, want to have a constructive argument. You're showing me that you are too divisive, that Hmm. you are quarrelsome, and that you simply want to be part of an argument that says more about your heart than it does about this argument. Yeah. I, I, I keep seeing those memes and I and I wish I could would take them to heart. I should probably print them out and like put them around my desk sometimes because there's times when I'm scrolling through Facebook and I like you uh, just uh, just suggested like I see things that I want to get in on. Mm-hmm. I want to su- insert my statement, but I see those memes where you know it's like the Holy Spirit you know closing off or shutting down that sort of urge, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm like I need yeah. to remember that because <laughs> and the thing that I come back to as I've reflected on the particular uh, uh, instance that you've been referring to is just, and I've written about this before and I should just eat my own medicine, I guess, is that the gospel of grace instills in me or it should instill in me the need, or let me, let me rephrase that because the gospel of grace is true. I don't always need to be right, or I don't need to prove myself right. Um, In every single conversation, in every single online dialogue especially online dialogue but it doesn't even have to be online but any sort of discussion or conversation it's not about my rightness it's about who uh, is ultimately true and that's christ and so i don't always have to be right i think that's i write about that and 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 i've spoken about that when i've talked about meekness and the meekness of, Mm -hmm. of the gospel and stuff like that and it just i find so much need for that and so i like the answer to the smugness of the gospel, I would say, is the meekness of grace. And I think that that is entirely something that we lack in modern evangelicalism. As And that's a broad brush statement, but I think as a as a whole, it holds true. Yeah. And um, that's to our shame that we have allowed the polarization to influence us in, in, in that same sort of degree. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Blake, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and talk with me. It has been such a joy to chat with you about theology and life and especially your book. I am so excited to uh, eventually read it. I can't wait to get it in my hands uh, once you finish it with it. And so I'm excited to see how the Lord moves you to continue writing. I pray that you are, you are developed too, as you continue studying and uh, continue writing. So uh, again, once again, thanks for coming on. Uh, I will be sure to have you on again in the very near future. So thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on. I, I really enjoyed it. Well, that's it for this episode of Ministry Minded. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you've been blessed by this conversation. I hope you will uh, take advantage of the links and the resources in the notes for this show and uh, get further acquainted with Blake, connect with him, and read some of the stuff that I have shared there. Uh, if you like this show, please consider subscribing to the Ministry Minded podcast. You can do so wherever podcasts are found. I appreciate all of your encouragement and your support. You are a true blessing to me, and I hope that this has been a blessing to you. I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings.